0: This is the For the Kingdom, Not the Brand podcast. Are you living out godly character in your private and public life? Where we show how biblical truth feeds biblical living from the perfect, powerful, and sufficient scriptures. God's love and grace is amazing because it is not withheld to those he loves. He fully redeems, he fully saves, he fully forgives. And now, your host, Atticus Wynn. Welcome to this episode of the For the Kingdom, Not the Brand podcast, and in this episode, I want to talk about something that is that often is forgotten by us American Christians in the twenty first in, in in the twenty first century and that's an understanding of church history, creeds, confessions, and catechisms. I will note that before I dive further into this topic, I'm not saying that every single person should have a PhD level of knowledge and understanding of these following topics, but I hope that this episode helps us as Christians actually become a lot more confessional. And what exactly do I mean by that? Well, I'm glad that you hypothetically asked that because I will answer it. I'll cite the definition given by both Wikipedia, yes, I'm using that source, and another article from Ligonier Ministries. Wikipedia says that confessionalism, or being, or or being confessional, means a belief in the importance of full and unambiguous assent to the whole of a movement's or overall denomination's teachings, such as those found in confessions of faith, which followers believe to be accurate summaries of the teachings f- found in scripture, and to show their overall distinction from other groups. Confessionalists uh, believe that differing interpretations or understandings, especially those in direct opposition to traditionally held teachings cannot be accommodated within a church communion. A denomination or church that shares these overall beliefs can be called a confessional denomination or, or confessional church, respectively. And meanwhile, Burke Parsons of Ligonier Ministry says that it is associated with written confessions of faith. He says that it's an important way of expressing who we are as Christians because we are Christians based on a set of truths and of doctrines. And as Christians, we adhere to a certain set of doctrines that are found in Scripture. Dr. Parsons also says uh, later in his article that, quote, All good confessions, all faithful confessions, state right from the outset that it's the Bible and the Bible alone that is our only infallible rule or source for faith and life. And that the Bible, that Scripture alone, is our only infallible rule for our faith in our lives and everything. And, I mean, essentially to sum it all up, To be confessional means that we as Christians express what we believe by a standard of biblical truths that have stood the test of time, and these confessions are fed by the word of God, which is perfect. And when it comes to church history, people may roll their eyes at it because why would it be important? I believe that there is a temptation in modern day evangelicalism to forego knowing of church history because after all, we should go out and love people like Jesus, right? I understand that there can be a sentiment of church services becoming more like history lectures rather than real sermons, but please bear with me as I explain why it can be helpful for us as Christians to learn of church history dr nathan uh of the masters seminary in an episode of dial in with johnny arduvanus talks about the great cloud of witnesses mentioned in hebrews and that the martyrs of the faith especially in the protestant reformation are a part of that crowd who took a stand for the faith in the midst of the highest of mountains in the lowest of valleys in the planet in the flattest of plateaus as they fought for the truths of scripture I would also add that our Bible is a historical document too, one that has withstood academic scrutiny at all at, at all levels. And we read the stories of Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Joseph, Samson, Jeremiah, Daniel, and others, including our Lord and Savior Jesus, as they went through their lives thousands of years ago. And also my last effort to really convince you to learn about church history comes from, comes from a pastor and a theologian by the name of John Payne. He says in his article, uh, in also in Ligonier's, um, that, quote, "...if church history does not get your blood pumping, you had better check your spiritual pulse. The 16th century alone provides a treasure of soul-stirring narratives." Think of Martin Luther's bold and daring stand for the gospel against the destructive errors of Rome. Consider the faithful witness of the English martyrs who died singing psalms as they were consumed by flames. Or how about the courageous life of John Knox, who, while enslaved in the bowels of a French galley ship, cried out, Give me Scotland or I die. The, the study of church history, however, is meant to provide more than just inspiration. Serious reflection on the past protects us from error, reminds us of God's faithfulness, and motivates us to persevere. Irish philosopher Edmund Burke wisely remarked that those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Indeed, without a basic knowledge of church history, individual Christians and churches are prone to repeat the same doctrinal errors and foolish mistakes of former days and and familiarity with the history and theology of the early ecumenical ecumenical councils of nicaea and chalcedon for example helps to protect individuals and churches from unwittingly Uh, choosing to believe ancient trinitarian and uh, trinitarian and christological heresies furthermore careful reflection upon careful 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 reflection upon on revivalistic movements such as the second great awakening warns us not to abandon not warns us not to abandon biblical ministry for various manipulative methods and quick numerical growth the study of church history, there therefore, preserves both orthodoxy, right doctrine, and orthopraxy, right practice. In addition to safeguarding us from doctrinal error, the study of church history helps protect us from repeating the foolish mistakes of others. And John Payne also says, Without a basic knowledge of church history, individual Christians and churches are prone to repeat the same doctrinal errors and foolish mistakes of former days. And later in John Payne's article, he says, To study church history is to study God's un unbending faithfulness christians must regularly reflect upon this truth in a world where there is increasing persecution of the church and the future seems uncertain like the psalmist we must quote recount all of god's wonderful deeds as it's shown in psalm chapter 9 verse 1 and hebrews hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 to remind ourselves that he will never leave us nor or forsake us Scripture provides a wealth of history to remind us of God's steadfast faithfulness. From the days of creation to the ministry of Christ to the establishment of the church, the Bible tells the story of the sovereign God who is faithful to His people. But it's not only in redemptive history that God's faithfulness is on display. It it is also seen in, in the annals of church history. Consider how God's faithfulness has manifested in the preservation and expansion of the early church during the grisly persecutions of Roman Emperor Diocletian. Think of God's fidelity in the recovery and rise of gospel proclamation during the 16th century Protestant Reformation or the astonishing multiplication of believers in China since 1850. And there are thousands of individual stories within the larger ones that remind us that our Heavenly Father can and should be trusted no matter what our circumstances. Every believer knows that he desperately needs he, that he de- desperately needs uh, that, uh, that desperately needs divine grace, motivation, and encouragement to carry on of course Christ and his ordained means of word sacrament and prayer are the essential means and motivation for perseverance Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 even so we might we can find motivation to persevere in the study of church history considering that quote great cloud of Great cloud of witnesses, the godly lives of believers from the past, can motivate and inspire us to, quote-unquote, "...lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and to run with endurance the race that is set before us." As it's shown in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Are you feeling spiritually weary? Are you ready to give up? Throw yourself into the arms of Christ and also into the pages of church history spend time reflecting upon the faithful lives and godly voices of the past on those whose whose faith motivates you to keep running take up and read the take up and read the biography of martin luther john bunyan jonathan edwards or elizabeth Elliot. explore an overview of the of the reformation or a survey of the modern missionary movement martin lloyd jones once asserted that every christian should learn from history it is his duty to do so he was right therefore dear therefore dear believer let us study learn and enjoy the history of the church now that you have or or Uh, Now that we have church history out of the way, we are going to talk about creeds and confessions more specifically. Ligonier Ministries carries another extensive article on this topic, and it begins with a very simple two-word phrase, sola scriptura. This rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation sounded forth during that great 16th century awakening when the Holy Spirit moved God's people to return to Scripture and cast off the many unbiblical traditions of men that had been imposed by the Roman Catholic Church. Returning to divine revelation as the final and the only infallible rule of faith, the Reformers and their heirs recovered the biblical gospel that had been all but lost under what had been added to Scripture over the centuries. Yet while the Reformers were known for what they cast aside, we must not overlook what they kept. In returning to the Scriptures, they set aside not all church traditions, but only the ones that contradicted God's Word. Traditions faithful to Scripture and that stood as sound expositions of the Biblical teaching were kept. Preeminent among those were the ecumenical creeds and confessions of the faith, such as the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon. The reformers kept these statements of faith and others because they were faithful summaries of the Bible's teaching on key doctrines of the faith. At their best, creeds and confessions served the purpose of summarizing what the Church believes Scripture to teach, helping believers to know biblical doctrine to discern false teaching and to instruct others in the deep matters of god's word while creeds and confessions do not take the place of scripture and while they operate in submission to scripture time-tested creeds and confessions provide invaluable guidance to us as we seek to believe what god has revealed and only what god has revealed everyone in fact has a creed or a confession that summarizes what he believes about the essential matters of the faith. Even the statements, no creed, uh, but Christ or no confession, but the Bible are themselves creeds and confessions that communicate core convictions. Moreover, the minute we start trying to, to, to relate one part of biblical teaching to another part, we are starting to form a creed. Creeds are so important that we find basic creeds, even in the Bible itself. And, 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 and the, Shema of Deuteronomy chapter six verse four is the fundamental creedal statement of biblical monotheism. Throughout the epistles, we find core summaries of the person and work of Christ that were likely recited or sung in the apostolic church. Philippians chapter two verse five through eleven summarizes the biblical teaching on the incarnation of the Son of God. First, First Timothy 3.16 masterfully encapsulates the work of Christ as well. And these examples and others show that summarizing and declaring our faith is a historical and biblical practice. From the start, Protestants put into creedal, confessional, and catechetical um form their convictions regarding what the bible teaches both to instruct their people and to explain their differences within the theological views of the roman catholic church martin luther wrote both a large catechism and a small catechism that summarizes essential teachings on faith and practice by expositing the apostles creed the ten commandments and the lord's prayer perhaps the most significant early protestant confession is the augsburg uh is the augsburg confession presented to emperor charles V at the Diet of Augsburg as a summary of Lutheran beliefs and where they differed from both Roman Catholicism and the teachings of the Anabaptists. To this day, the Augsburg Confession remains the fundamental confession of the Lutheran tradition. Throughout the 16th century, reformed Protestants who held sway in the Church of England in Geneva and elsewhere composed many different creeds, confessions and catechisms, including the 39 Articles of Religion, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic and the Belgic Confession the 39 articles continue to guide the anglican the the anglican communion while the heidelberg catechism and the belgic confession are two of the three forms of unity that are the confessional foundation of the dutch reformed church Um, a a host of other reformed confessions written during the same period continue to serve the churches of the reformed tradition and one of the most important of the of the reformed confessions the canons of dort is the third of the three forms of unity and has served to unite christians from many different traditions who hold to a, to a reformed understanding of god's grace in salvation a high point of a a high point of reformed uh, uh, of reformed confessionalism is represented by the westminster standards written in the middle of the 17th century to reform the church of england but which has subsequently been adopted by by Presbyterians the world over. And so that is the end of the uh of the second or third article by Ligonier and, and it and if it hasn't been made clear yet with all, all of the hints, my theology can be ascribed to be more along the lines of Presbyterian. Although going past that um, th- th- although going going past that whole like tongue-in-cheek remark, I wanna say that it is pivotal that we as Christians are historic as well in our understanding of the faith at the end of the day, it doesn't make us more saved before the Lord, but, but as it's shown through, through the articles I have read out, these can be great equipping tools for our Christian life personally, corporately in the church and evangelistically. And I'll be fair to, to the Baptists and also, and, and also I'll include an article from them jeff robinson has a beautiful article in nine marks about catechisms and he gives great application uh, in terms of how you can use a catechism with children to feed them biblical truth as such at such an early age and jeff and and jeff uh robinson says our 10 year old son recently made a profession of faith in jesus and and one of our neighbors upon learning of his conversion asked me about our next step with him we are considering baptizing him I told her although before we do that we want to watch him for a while and thoroughly catechize him in sound doctrine to make sure he understands the gospel and the commitment he's made to Christ she looked confused i didn't realize all y'all were roman catholic i, I thought i thought that you were baptists our catechisms a baptist thing her reaction threw me for a few seconds, and then it hit me. My mention of catechisms gave her the impression that we were Roman Catholics. Actually, Baptists have always catechized their children. It's not just a Roman Catholic thing. I've had a similar reaction over the years when uh, when talking about catechisms with other Christians. To the thinking of many, Baptists and catechism aren't really allies, although historically speaking, nothing could be further from the truth. The Reformation was a golden age for catechisms among Protestants. Luther and Calvin placed high priorities on catechizing both children and adults, and each wrote catechisms for that purpose. The Heidelberg Catechism in 1562 and the Westminster Shorter Catechism of 1647 are the two best known and most influential catechisms to emerge from from the Reformed tradition. It's not as well known, but Baptists also have a rich tradition of writing and using catechisms. They've used catechisms virtually since their appearance in the 17th century. Both particular Baptists and general Baptists in England used them. The unforgettably named Hercules Collins, a, a, a particular-slash-Calvinistic Baptist pastor in 17th century England, adapted the Heidelberg Catechism as the, as the basis for, for his Orthodox catechism, published in 1680. One of the most influential catechisms to emerge from Baptists was the Baptist Catechism, published by uh, Keach. It is often called Keach's Catechism, and it's based on the Shorter Catechism, which also served as the basis for Spurgeon's Catechism in the 19th century. Uh, and and also leading divines among the general Arminian Baptists in England, Thomas Grantham and Dan Taylor also published catechisms in the 17th and 18th century. And Baptists in America use uh as a fundamental tool america's first baptist association the philadelphia association and the south's first baptist association the charleston association published duplicates of keach's catechism dozens of churches in both associations faithfully use catecheses producing different versions according to age and learning level. The shorter shorter catechism will be suitable for younger children, while the larger catechism was written for older children and adults. Henry Jesse, a leader among early Particular Baptists, uh, he produced three catechisms bound together, including one with only four questions, titled A Catechism for Babes, or Little Ones. Though though Baptists haven't, haven't produced a new catechism in many decades, they did so well into the 19th century as demonstrated by James uh, Boyce's Catechism of Bible Doctrine in 1864 and, and, and John uh, Broadus's Catechism commissioned by the Southern Baptist Sunday School Board in 1891. But that's more than 100 years ago, so I want to call my Baptist brothers and sisters to actually recover this time-honored method of teaching children and adults biblical doctrine. Over the years, my children and many friends have benefited from this practice. And here are four reasons this excellent teaching method should be recovered. One, children's minds cling to memorized facts like glue. Children will amaze you by how much information they can memorize. Two two of my kids knew the children's version of the Baptist Catechism by age 10, and they would often good-naturedly uh, taunt me by asking Dad, uh... Uh, let me have the book so I can see if you know it. Their minds held the answers far better than mine, and that's not because my children were unusually brilliant. It's because while well, they're children, and most kids can memorize far better than adults. And the third reason that and and the third reason is that catechizing children gives them a framework for interpreting life. Teach your children the Baptist Catechism the the new city catechism the heidelberg catechism or any number of other classic evangelical catechisms as you do you provide them with with a well-rounded christian worldview you introduce them to the one who created the world to how the world went wrong and to what god has done to actually repair it Catechisms introduce children to all the vital doctrines of Scripture, and it it equips them with answers when the world begins to pound away at the door of their faith, particularly during the college years. And four, seeds of truth planted now may bloom into a harvest of grace. Spiritual formation requires discipline. Teaching your children the great truths of, of Christianity requires both diligence and patience. Jesus' parable of the growing seed in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 28, encourages such endeavors. It says the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Brothers and sisters, get a copy of a catechism and start scattering seeds in the young hearts of your Home and church—they are fruitful for Baptists and all Christians. And so, with everything in mind, how do we move forward? Because I just dropped a ton of truth on top of all y'all. First, I want to point you guys um, to a few historical uh, catechisms that are biblically based and have stood the test of time. And and these are some of which uh, I've I've actually uh, uh, am, am am currently uh, studying and going through. Now the Westminster larger and shorter catechism and the Heidelberg uh, catechism are two really, really good ones. Uh, if you are, are more on the reform side, um, and, and I will say the reformed Baptists are, are, are also familiar with the 1689, uh, Baptist catechism. And, I will say that personally i'm more i'm more of a heidelberg like catechism kind of guy but i digress and there are plenty of apps to even memorize and learn and learn the catechisms by the way so so that you don't have to actually buy a physical copy since i'm i'm pretty sure that they vary in price from like nine to sixteen dollars and so as i close this episode i want to say that i don't want this i i don't mean this episode to be condemning Although I wanted to be encouraging that there's so much history and so much to learn about the faith and that we're not isolated in history as American Christians and that we carry a rich heritage that, uh, that, uh, that was recovered start, starting in Germany when Luther shook the world. And anyway, I'll catch you guys in the next episode. Peace.